All right. Good morning. You like that one, Jane? You like like that slide? Uh, For those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Brock Boldy, and I have had the privilege of being the pastor over the Children's Ministries here for the past 12 and a half years. So God has given me the opportunity to be here for quite some time. And every now and again, when Jack is away at some speaking engagement or taking some kind of random trip to England... um, The elders allow me to step into big church to preach to you from the living word of God. And as he saw fit, he allowed me to do this on Valentine's Day, the National Day of Love, which inspired me, inspired me to entitle uh, today's sermon, Wav Tuav. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the movie The Princess Bride, you know that the gentleman that is pictured behind me is none other than the impressive clergyman. In what is perhaps, I think, one of the most memorable scenes in the movie, you have this rather impressive fellow performing a marriage ceremony between the fair Princess Buttercup and the wily Prince Humperdinck, a man that she absolutely despises, while at the same time her true love, Wesley, is doing everything that he can to get in there to save her. It is here that the impressive clergyman delivers his classic lines. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage. That blessed arrangement. That dream within a dream. And love, true love, will follow you forever. So treasure your love. There you have it, my princess bride. I mean, just saying those words kind of gives you the warm fuzzies, at least it does for me. But it begs the question, and it needs to be asked, what is true love? Well, depending on on who you ask, you can get all kinds of different answers. I mean, most assuredly, just about everyone would say, yes, love is a wonderful and important thing. Nobody would argue that. And yet there is very little agreement as to what it really is. I mean, do the Beatles have it right? Is love really all you need? Or do some of these other quotes regarding love more closely capture what true love is? Here are but a few of the many thoughts floating around out there concerning love. Love is like playing the piano. First, you must learn to play by the rules. Then you must forget the rules and play from your heart. Beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) Or love is an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. Love is like dew that falls on both nettles and lilies. Here's a good one. Love is like war. Easy to begin, but very hard to stop. And then by Woody Allen, he says this, I was nauseous and tingly all over. I was either in love or I had the smallpox. (laughs) Now, each of these quotes offers us some insight into how love can tend to be viewed. For many, love is nothing more than some kind of this irresistible force, as you would, that that nobody has the power to stand firm against. I mean, despite one's best efforts, the power of love is just simply too strong. It's it's and it's absolutely futile to try to resist. I mean, it's like standing in the way of a tidal wave. 
And it just comes crashing down on anyone and anything that dares to stand in its path. Now, the problem with most people's views concerning love is that they see it as strictly an emotion, a feeling that consumes them and thus overrides all logic and thinking. It just kind of shuts down. A force that overwhelms people to the point that they are relegated to some kind of a victim status, assaulted, if you would, by the power of love. I mean, just look at Valentine's Day. I mean, who is the mascot or the poster child for Valentine's Day? And it's Cupid, a pudgy little infantile being with wings that flutters around looking for unsuspecting people to shoot his arrows of love at. And once, of course, these arrows of love hit their intended target, this victim falls madly and irrationally in love with whomever Cupid sees fit to direct them. Now, included within this cupidic way of thinking, I just made that word up, that was nice, (laughs) is the whole notion of love at first sight. It is another means by which a person is brought under the power and, uh, of love and thus their entire being is held captive by some beautiful sight that they see. They are nothing more than a, a prisoner that has been confined to the jailhouse of love. But I ask you, is this love? Well, what many attempt to classify as love, brothers and sisters, is nothing short of lust. We see something that we desire and we will do anything to have it. We feel something that we haven't felt before and we will not be denied until our craving has been quenched. We have been satisfied. But this is not, this is not love. And although the culture, culture we find ourselves living in attempts to define love in this way, we as believers cannot. We must never allow these false views regarding love to creep into our understanding of what true biblical love really is. Our culture must not, cannot shape our understanding of God's word, but instead God's word must and has to enlighten and heighten our understanding of this culture that we find ourselves living within. Leon Morris offers some keen insight when he writes this, Because the Bible has some significant and distinctive things to say about love, we must guard against assuming that we know all about love so that we make the Bible parrot our ideas. It is important that we let Scripture speak for itself. We must go on to ask how its ideas affect our understanding of love and our attempts to show love to others, end quote. Love is plastered all throughout the pages of Scripture. And if we were to bring a wrong or a faulty understanding of what love really is, we put ourselves in danger of missing one of the most significant doctrines in all of the Bible. Listen to but a few of the many verses that call upon us to love. Jesus, in speaking with the, spoke these words in response to the Pharisee lawyer's question regarding the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to these right now. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. 
On the night of his betrayal, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 21. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Peter, in writing to the persecuted and afflicted church, penned these words in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The Apostle John, in an attempt to combat the false teachers of his day, wrote in 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And you know what? I could go on and on and after offer you verse after verse, but I hope that you're beginning to see the importance of having a right understanding of love. Now, the Greeks were at a bit of a, an advantage from what we have because the Greeks had four different words to help differentiate between the various kinds of love. That is a luxury that we simply do not have in the English language. As a result, we can bring a a rather confused and convoluted understanding of love to our reading of God's word. And we can actually bring this wrong understanding of love into God's word and thus miss a critical thing that God is trying to teach us. We must fight against this. For true biblical love is much purer, much deeper, and much more life-altering than many of us are understanding it to be. In a culture that finds us using the word love to describe our feelings about coffee, a movie, or even our pets, it is easy to see the uninspiring effect it can have when we come to the Bible and we read about the love you and I are to have for God and the love that you and I are to have for one another. My goal this morning is to change all of that. My goal this morning is to help each of us to better grasp the meaning of true biblical love, a love that is grounded in the pages of Scripture rather than formulated in the hearts of a culture. So with that said, I'd like you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we are going to look at verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7, the love chapter. This is what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning and thank you so much for giving us this privilege to open up your word. And I do just pray right now that as we we turn to your word, I pray that you will bless it. I pray that you will bless our time together and use it to help us all to more rightly understand what true love is. Father, I pray that you will just help me to clearly communicate your truth in a way that will just speak to each of us so that we might better understand who you are and how we are to respond to you. 
and how we are to treat one another. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son so that we can have the perfect example of what true love really is. May we just honor him today as we, as we teach on this very important subject. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, for anybody who has spent a minimal amount of time reading their Bibles, it is uncomfortably obvious that the church of Corinth had issues. I mean, founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, the church was located in a city that really had become to be characterized by its drunkenness and immorality. The church struggled, and and a lot of times it it struggled between the the pull of the culture that surrounded it, this this sense of worldliness and living as the world, and and yet this, this newfound godliness that Paul had brought and exposed them to. And so as a result, the Apostle Paul writes to them in an effort to correct them and to encourage them to to finally grow up, to stop living in this world that is passing away and indulging yourself in all of these things that are passing away, and to start living and behaving as those who have been bought with a price, those whom Christ died for. And so in a sense, he's pleading with them, he's begging with them to start acting like a Christian, like a follower of Christ. So it's not surprising, therefore, to find Paul bringing up many of the church issues in his, in his explanation of what love is, because for all intents and purposes, the Corinthians were not loving. They were failing to love. We find terms like jealousy, which is an issue that he addresses in 1 Corinthians 3.3. Bragging, which he mentions in in 4.7. Arrogance, noted in 4.6. Seeking their own, referenced in 10.24. Taking wrong into account, seen in 6.7. Rejoicing in unrighteousness, alluded to in 1 Corinthians 5.2. I'm sorry. These issues and many others were in need of addressing because, again, the Corinthians were missing the mark. They were missing the point of what they had been saved for. And they were living very selfish, very unbiblically undisciplined lives. And Paul, out of love, seeking only their goods, sought to show them how unchristlike they were behaving. He sought to help them to see the supremacy of the Christian life. How foolish and futile these things that they were indulging in really were. And so he tries to show them true love, not the self-serving love, not the self-serving love that they were in the habit of practicing. They had that down pretty good. But now, as I've mentioned earlier, the Greeks had four different words for love. And the word that we find being used in our text and primarily really throughout the entire New Testament is the word agape. It's an agape type of love. Now, please understand I'm here for one time while Jack's gallivanting in in England. I am not going to be able to get to the depth of everything that is in here. I mean, we could literally spend 20 weeks unpacking each of these terms. I am going to give you all 15 of them today. So please don't think I'm, I'm being shallow or anything like that. I'm just trying to get us through all 15 so we can get a glimpse into what this agape type 
love is. Now, according to J.I. Packer, the Greek word agape, love, seems to have been virtually a, a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing, apart from uh, about 20 occurrences in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It is almost non-existent before the New Testament. Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. It is a matter of will rather than feeling. It is the basic element in Christ-likeness, end quote. Now, agape love has been described as the, the best type of love because it is the type of love that, that God has for us. It is the type of love that, that no man is naturally inclined to practice apart from having the enabling work of the Holy Spirit in him. Okay. Agape love is love at its most purest, its most noblest. It is, for all intents and purposes, true, unadulterated love. And without this type of love, the Christian life is, is rendered completely useless in God's economy of things. Though one speaks with the tongues of men and of angels... He is regarded or reduced to nothing more than a noisy gong if he is out, if he was without this agape type love. If one knows great and mysterious things and has faith such as to move mountains, yet it is without agape type love. He is considered as nothing. If one sells all that he has to feed the poor and suffers even unto death, but does this without agape love, he is benefited in no way whatsoever. The necessity of agape type love is clearly seen as we look at a passage like 1 John 4.20. It says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So you may be sitting out there right now saying, all right, Brock, I I, I get it. We need agape type love, but what does it look like? How do I know if I'm practicing this type of agape type love or if I've been duped into kind of blending and coming up with my own version of what love really is? Well, the question that should lead us right back to the text of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. For it is in this text that we find the apostle offering us a glimpse into the makeup of agape-type love. It is here that we find 15 traits that we're meant to help shape our understanding of the truest and most beautiful form of love that exists. And while, again, the list of traits is by no means exhaustive, That is to say that agape-type love is not only these 15 traits. This isn't it. It's more than these 15 traits. But it is to say that that this agape-type love cannot be any less than these 15 traits. So it is more than this list we're going to cover today, but it is no less than this. So each one of these 15 traits is meant to assist us. So but we would practice true love. And you know what, brothers and sisters, this is just as applicable for us right now, today, as it was when Paul wrote these words under the influence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit many years ago. Lou Priola gets us off to a good start when he writes this about love. He says, quote, Biblical love is not primarily a feeling. In fact, love isn't even an emotion primarily. Love is something you do. 
much more than something you feel. It involves motion much more than it does fleeting emotion. Each of the 15 terms that is used to describe love is is a verb. And you know what? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that God would choose to use a series of verbs to define the nature of love as opposed to a host of adjectives? But using both positive and negative terms, Paul helps us to see the person who is striving to love biblically will seek to conduct themselves in a manner that is reflective of the love that is seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. Church historians say that Christianity spread so rapidly across the Roman Empire, not because of the cleverly devised apologetics or thinking of its theologians, but because of the infectious love that was seen amongst its people. In describing the first century Christians to the Roman Emperor Hadrian Aristides, to, to the Roman Emperor Hadrian, Aristides said this, They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who will hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers and sisters in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit and God. Love is not something that is solely felt. It is something that is clearly done and it is something that is clearly seen. And the first quality that Paul encourages all believers to display is this patience. He starts it right off. Love is patient. Or to phrase it a bit differently, love is long-suffering. This particular term always refers to being patient with people and not things or circumstances. You do not love because you are patiently waiting out a green or a red light. You, this applies to people. And you know what? How difficult it is to show patience towards someone who has upset the balance of nature by slowing down or altering our very thought or our agenda. How difficult it is to be long-suffering with that spouse who continues to squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle instead of rolling it up from the bottom like a civilized person. (laughs) How much we struggle with being short-fused when our kids actually have the audacity to act like kids, even though they know how much it bugs us. Amazing. How impatient we become with those people in our lives who should know better and yet continue to disappoint us with their choices. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever felt that there was some type of conspiracy out there, a conspiracy of people that have made it their aim to just irritate you? I mean, they will not rest until they have accomplished their mission of pushing every single button so that you have no reasonable alternative but to just explode. You ever feel that way? Well, if you can relate to that, then allow me to let you in on a little secret. The problem is not with them. The problem is with you. The problem is that you are failing to love as God's word commands you to love you are failing to love as the one whom you are claiming to follow has loved 
Just listen to 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. It says this. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, how patient is God with you? How long-suffering is God with you? How would you fare if our Lord treated you and responded to you in the same way that you typically respond to others? Would we be seeing your face here today? Would you still be alive? But let's take this one step further, for this is where the Word of God takes it. Are you patient with those who purposefully injure or attack you? With those whom we might consider to call them our enemies? That neighbor who's always kind of griping and complaining about you? That coworker who is continually slandering you and the work that you do? Christian is called to love his enemies. He is called to long-suffering as he trusts the Lord to right the wrong, to fix that which is broken, realizing that God's timing is not always in line with ours. Remembering what Psalm 94 says, for a thousand years are but a day to the Lord. Love is patient. The next quality we see in our list of verbs concerning love is kindness. Love is kind. To think of love without kindness is to think of spring without flowers. Kindness has a type of influence that, that makes everything it touches a little bit better, a little bit, a little bit brighter. And yet many professing believers are anything but kind. Oh, now don't get me wrong. They have their orthodox, their orthodox. Their doctrine is sound. It is solid. They know their creeds forward and backwards, and yet many of these people lack kindness. They speak truth, but it is a truth that has not been seasoned with grace such that it benefits the hearer. William Barclay comments that so much Christianity is good but unkind. There is no more religious a man than Philip II of Spain, and yet he founded the Spanish Inquisition and thought he was serving God by massacring those who thought differently from him. Many, many are quick to speak the truth, and yet they do it without taking into consideration the kindness of love. So when you deal with non-believers or people that you're not even sure of, where they're at spiritually, you have no clue where they are. Are you kind? I'm going to let you in on a little something. I shared it with the, uh, the first hour people, and hopefully I'll still have a job after this. But um, this past Christmas Eve, I was feeling brave. And so I decided to serve my bride by picking up a few things from her for her for, at Costco. 
Now, as you can imagine, the parking lot was a complete and total zoo. But by God's grace, I just happened to stumble across someone who was bringing their cart to their car. And I was able to stop in a place to where I was in position to get it. So rejoicing in my good fortune and praising God for his goodness to me, I put my blinker on and proceeded to wait for the next couple of minutes while this person emptied the contents of their cart. They then got into their car, they backed out, and they pulled ahead to go to the exit, which as they pulled ahead, they kind of momentarily blocked me from being able to pull right into the spot. So I had to, I had to wait till they were clearly out of the way. Well, somebody coming from the other direction saw this as an opportunity to, to take the spot that I had come to see as being rightfully mine. They, uh, they pulled right in, ignoring my blinker, and took what I had so patiently been waiting for. And of course, I responded like any real Christian would by bolting out of my car to let this person know that they were parking in my spot. And to my great shock, this 70-some-year-old lady didn't really care that she was parking in my spot. In fact, as I pleaded with her to move, she attempted to roll up the window on me. At which point I did what any real Christian would do, and I placed my hands upon her window to keep it from rolling up. And I think it was at that point in time that I realized this is not going well. And so I got back into my car, which was now being held by someone who was in a car behind me because in my haste to get out, I failed to put on the emergency brake and my car started to roll back. And I drove off in search of another spot at Costco on Christmas Eve. Pastor Brock, big loser. (laughs) I mean, if ever there was an unloving way to handle such a situation, clearly this is it. I mean, in my Christian desire for justice and fairness, I failed to respond in a way that would show this lady and the million other people that were there at Costco that day that Christians are different. And if you and I aren't careful in our zeal for justice and fairness, we can forget about the kindness of God. We can forget the gracious truth of Romans 2.4, which says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is not his wrath. Likewise, it will be our loving kindness to others that will enable them to see that they need Jesus. It will be our agape type love that will show them the greatness of our Lord and Savior, not our demands for justice and fairness. Love is kind. Now, the next eight qualities that we find regarding love are expressed in a a negative manner. That is, we are told what love isn't or what it doesn't do. First on this list of negatives is the fact that love is not jealous. Now, the word jealous here can be used in both a positive or a negative way. 
Positively, this word means zeal and our enthusiasm, and that is good when it's directed towards the Lord. Negatively, it generates a wrong feeling about the good fortunes of another and is usually described with words like envy or bitterness. Now, each of us has probably experienced these feelings. We've watched others get the praise and the attention that that we so desperately wanted. We felt resentment over the fact that, that God didn't make us a certain way. That he didn't make us as, a, as attractive as so-and-so. That he didn't give us the dynamic testimony of, of this person. That he didn't endow us with the same spiritual gifts as, as that person. That he didn't afford us the same opportunities in life as he did this person. I mean, the list could go on and on. We are all very natural at seeing that which we don't have instead of praising that which God has seen fit to give us. Jealousy is the desire to have something for yourself that somebody else has. It is failing to be content with what you have and becoming embittered over your perceived lack of that which others possess. The story is told of how the devil was crossing the Libyan desert when he met a number of his people tormenting a holy hermit. They tried to involve the hermit in sins of the flesh, tempting him in every way they knew how to do, but to no avail. Steadfastly, the sainted man shook off all their suggestions. Finally, after watching their failure and disgust, the devil whispered to the tempters, What you do is too crude. Permit me one moment. Then the devil whispered to the holy man, Your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. And a scowl of malignant jealousy at once crowded the serene face of the hermit. That, said the devil to his imps, is the sort of thing which I should recommend. If some of you spend as much time utilizing what God has entrusted to your care as you do thinking about what he has entrusted to the care of others, I'm confident that Calvary Bible Church would look a whole lot different. Love is not jealous. Next on the list surrounding the qualities of love is love does not brag. This simply means that the person who truly loves does not put himself on display. In other words, they get the fact that it is not all about them. In fact, they realize that it's not about them at all. But it is amazing how quickly some of us are to brag about the things which we really don't have a whole lot of control over. I mean, earlier in his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I mean, have you ever stopped and think about that? What do any of us have that we did not receive from God? fact that you have legs that can walk eyes that can see ears that can hear hands that can hold minds that can think these are all things that we really have had no control over whatsoever and yet things that are vitally important in shaping who and what we are The only thing that any of us should ever seek to boast about if we are a Christian is is Jesus Christ. Not in any way boasting about our superior intellect of choosing Him, but rather boasting 
in his grace and in the mercy that he showed in choosing us. This is truly amazing. This is something that is worthy of our boasting. I mean, really, who cares how smart you are? I assure you, there are smarter people that are burning in hell right now. Who really cares how beautiful you are? I assure you, there are more beautiful people that are being tormented in hell right now. Who cares how athletic or musical you are? There are greater athletes and musicians that are suffering in hell right now. Brothers and sisters, true love does not seek to draw the applause of men by bragging about one's accomplishments. True love does not seek to grab the spotlight so that it can tell others how wonderful it is. Love does not brag. The next quality of love that we find is that it is not arrogant. This is a term that is closely related to bragging, but whereas bragging is something that we say, arrogance is is really kind of more of an attitude that we possess. An arrogant person is one who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to. This type of person has an inflated view of themselves, and they feel that they have a greater impact upon the world than they actually do. An arrogant person can easily be of the mindset that, you know what, God sure is fortunate that he has somebody like me. Because if I wasn't on God's team, this whole thing would just fall apart. This Christianity thing would be over with. But because I'm on God's team, it's all good. You know, Elijah, as great a man of God as he was, he had an attitude of, of arrogance when he, when he had shared with the Lord that, that he was the only one left in all of Israel that was zealous for him. But you know what? God had news for Elijah when he gave him instructions about what was going to happen, what he was going to have Elijah do. In 1 Kings 19.18, God tells the mighty prophet, he says this, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You know, Elijah had given himself too prominent a place in thinking that he was the only one left in Israel that had not deserted the Lord to follow after Baal. But God still had 7,000 other servants that were being faithful to their calling. And these 7,000 would continue to proclaim the greatness of God with or without Elijah. There is no one man by which the kingdom of God is completely dependent upon. God is fine, just fine, without any of us. So let us never become arrogant in our service to him. For love is not arrogant. Next in the list of love's qualities that are displayed in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is the fact that love does not act unbecomingly. In other words, love isn't rude. It just isn't rude. I mean, there are a number of professing believers that put little to no effort into practicing any form of courtesy. The words of please and thank you 
are just foreign words to them. They rarely cross their lips. When they sit down to eat with their family, they, they demand that the food they want to be passed to them now. When they go out to a restaurant, they treat the waiter as if he is some sort of slave whose sole purpose in life is to, to be at their beck and call. There are no pleases or thank yous because in their minds, the person is simply doing their job. And after all, I don't get any thanks and pleases and thank yous when I do my job. So why should I give it to them? I can't help but think about how unbecomingly many Christians choose to be simply because our society says it's okay. Man, it's not a sin to hold the door open for a lady. It's, it's courteous. Husband, it's actually a good thing if you make it a point to get your wife's car door for her. Odds are you did it at some point in time when you were trying to show her what a great husband you'd be, so keep doing it. Wives, it's not polite for you to roll your eyes at your husband when he asks you to do something for him. It's not polite to keep asking him over and over and over again in an effort to help him to practice the fine art of mutual submission. And when you do ask, ask kindly. Don't be rude. Young people, in regards to your parents, don't speak to them as if you were speaking to your friends. In fact, stop speaking to your friends as if you're speaking to your friends. (laughs) And don't even get me started with how some of you talk to your brothers and sisters. I mean, it is, it is just rude. Love, however, is not rude. The next thing we find out about love is that it does not seek its own. You know, you and I live in a nation where, whereby the Declaration of Independence tells us that every man is endowed with certain unalienable rights. And, and I have a deep appreciation for these so-called rights and yet i fear that they have allowed many many to seek their own interests may i be so bold as to say that if you are a christian you do not have a right to all of your rights no true christian who is seeking to love god and his neighbor can fully exercise his rights or his liberties Because the more that you love God and the more that you love your neighbor, the less selfish you will be. Paul makes this point perfectly clear in a section where he's talking about the eating of meat that has been sacrificed to idols in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You see, the selfish person isn't really concerned for the welfare of other people. He only thinks of of himself. His thoughts never wander far from his wants, his needs, his rights. I mean, selfishness is a terrible monster, and you and I need to go to battle each and every day with this terrible monster so that we don't succumb to it. Marriages are falling apart all around us because husbands and wives are failing to see how self-focused they are becoming. She doesn't respect 
me. He doesn't take the time to lead me. She doesn't care about meeting my physical needs. He doesn't know how to communicate with me. Now, I don't negate that these are real issues and they need to be dealt with. But I do tell you that they need to be dealt with in love. It's really easy to see the faults in other people and and it's really hard to see those faults in ourselves. Our selfishness has a tendency of blinding us so that we don't realize that we're a part of the problem. Now, much of what we are doing is being done in selfishness and empty conceit. Our focus has become so inward, it's become all about our wants, our desires, that we fail to consider that which is best for those around us. Love. True, biblical love does not seek its own. Next up, we learn that love is not provoked. True Christians, a true Christian's love never uses the sin of another as an excuse to sin. You may try to, but you're going to find that you do not have a biblical leg to stand on in regards to that. I mean, when somebody sins against us, the natural thing that we want to do is we want to sin back. You say that to me? Well, here, try this. You do that to me? Well, I'm going to do this to you. And the Old Testament law that was to govern the nation of Israel even made allowances for this, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then something happened to change all of that. This man by the name of Jesus came along. And he taught his disciples some things that would completely alter their natural way of thinking. He taught them, instead of retaliating, to to love their enemies and to pray, to actually pray for those who persecuted them. The Apostle Paul echoed these thoughts in Romans 12, 17, when he writes, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. When someone sins against us, we are not to pay them back in kind. Instead, we are to pay them back in kindness. Some of you are easily provoked and quickly respond in anger. This is not how God has called us to live. Remember, love, true love is not provoked. Moving along, we find the next quality of love, that being that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. This simply means that love does not keep a record of wrongs done. It is forgiving. It has been said of Abraham Lincoln that he never forgot a kindness and he never remembered a wrong. The unwillingness to forgive those who have sinned against you is tragic. Tragic. And brothers and sisters, I fear... I fear for the souls of those with an unforgiving spirit, for I cannot help but wonder how little, how little they are grasping the magnitude of their own sins before a holy God. I cannot help but fear that they have missed the good news of having their sins forgiven and that they are in some way thinking that their sins maybe aren't so bad as to deserve hell. Anyone who is willing to receive God's forgiveness for their sins and yet 
not grant forgiveness to those who sin against them is the greatest hypocrite of all. Love could and should keep a record of its creditors, but it must never, never keep a record of its debtors. Since Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, they are people whose sins have been removed from them as far as the east is from the west. They are people who have had their sins cast into the depths of the sea. They are a people who have God hiding their sins behind his back. We are the most forgiven people in the world, and as such, we must be the most forgiving people in the world. Love. True biblical love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Which brings us to the last of the negatively stated qualities about love. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love finds no pleasure in the presence of sin, whether it be our own in our own lives or the lives of others. Some Christians, though, they find it stimulating to talk about the faults and the failures of other people. I mean, it's almost as if they delight in the fact that that sin has reared its ugly head in that person's life. And now they have something that they can talk about, something that they can look at themselves and say, well, hey, at least I'm not doing that. William Barclay got it right when he wrote this. It is one of queer traits of human nature that very often we prefer to hear of the misfortune of others rather than of their good fortune. It is much easier to weep with them that weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. Too many professing believers find too much pleasure in the hearing and telling of others' moral failures. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Having covered all of the negatively stated qualities of love, we are now ready to look at the last five positively stated qualities. With, starting with, love rejoices with the truth. Now, riding on the heels of not rejoicing in the prevailing of sin, Paul wants us to see that love delights in the sharing of that which is good, that which is true. Where there is Christian love, there is truth. And it makes the believer's heart glad. God's word calls us to walk in truth, according to 2 John 4. And as we do this, there is a great joy. I mean, when when a Christian is basking in that which is true, when they are in God's word and they are drinking it in, when they are in fellowship with God through prayer, communicating with him, communing with him, when they are around other believers, fellowshipping with them, Our souls are blessed. We are strengthened. We are encouraged. We rejoice in the goodness that we are around. To be absent from these things is to be away from that which is true. And this can only lead us to despair. If you don't enjoy being in God's word, if you find no pleasure in talking with God? If coming to church doesn't energize you and make you rejoice, can I just ask you to examine 
where your heart is, where your love is. See, because love longs to be surrounded with truth. It delights to be in truth's presence. Brothers and sisters, if your joy is in the things of this world, the things that are passing away, if that is what you find joy in, then please examine your life to see if you're truly in the faith. If we are genuine, true believers, we will seek to be around others that love God and love His truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Next, we find that love bears all things. This simply means that love is able to patiently endure any insult, wrongdoing, hardship, or burden that may be brought upon you by someone other than yourself. It could also have the sense of covering, whereby it seeks to protect others from harm. If this is the case, then we need to understand that sin is never protected, only the sinner. 1 Peter 4, 8 reminds us of that truth. It says, love covers a multitude of sins. Whatever the case may be, though, the greatest display of this truth is found when one looks to the cross. For it is there that we find Jesus bearing the full weight of our sins. It is there that we find our Savior suffering in our steed. It is there that we find our sins being washed away with His blood. How amazing a thing that one such as He should die for one such as us. I mean, God's love is is an amazing love. And a day should never go by in which you are not just amazed at this love to which you are completely and totally astounded that he took on himself all of our guilt, all of our shame. Why? So that we might be made right with our heavenly father, that we might rule and reign with him forever in glory. Amazing. What an amazing God we have. And what an example we have in that love bears all things. Moving along, we find that love believes all things. Now, this does not mean that love is blind and that it is easily deceived, but it does mean that it is not cynical or suspicious of everyone. I mean, how sad it is when Christians go around thinking the worst about each other. I don't know if you've ever done something like this, but I know I have. Have you ever attempted to play God by thinking that you could rightly discern someone's motive without really talking to them about it? I mean, in other words, if you ever just assume that the reason somebody said what they did or acted in the way that they did was because they had this evil motive, that the reason your spouse said what he said to you was because he just had this evil thought and just wanted you to suffer. We can do that, though, can't we? We can think that we can figure out somebody's motives, what drives them to do what they do, just by looking, not by talking with them. Love doesn't do that. Love believes the best about someone until it, ha- until it is reluctantly forced to come to some other conclusion. But it does this reluctantly. 
Well, brothers and sisters, how many needless disputes could be avoided if we but practiced this one quality of love? You know, there's a principle in our legal system that requires the government prove the guilt of a criminal defendant. Thus, it relieves the defendant of any burden to prove his or her innocence. Simply stated, this means that a person is innocent until proven guilty. I find it interesting that a system which takes no directive from God would have a maxim like this in place when so many from the Christian community who have a directive from God fail to practice this in our dealings with one another. I don't know if we've become jaded because of the countless failings of of those in whom we have placed our trust, but the bottom line is that love requires Christians to believe the best about each other. And when people fail, as they most certainly will do, then we must believe in the fact that God will heal and restore them. Love believes all things. Next on the list of love's qualities is love hopes all things. Love is the eternal optimist for even when we are let down by the failings of others and their apparent lack of responsiveness, we know that we serve a God that is capable of doing far more abundantly than any of us could even begin to imagine. The problem with too many Christians is the fact that they don't see God rightly. They don't see him for who he really is, a God who can do anything. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that we serve a God who is capable of changing a heart and conforming you more and more into his glorious image? Do you believe that we have a God who is able to save that that unbelieving parent, that unbelieving grandparent, that unbelieving spouse, that unbelieving daughter, that unbelieving son, that unbelieving friend, that unbelieving neighbor, that unbelieving co-worker? Do you believe that the one who simply spoke everything into existence is able to change a heart? Do you have the courage and the faith to hope that he'll actually do it? Hope is a powerful thing when it's placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It can make the impossible possible when it is securely anchored to the foot of the cross. Love hopes all things. The last and final quality of love that we find from our text this morning is that love endures all things. This is a military term, and it means to sustain the assault of an enemy. According to Charles Hodge, it is used in the New Testament to express the idea of sustaining the assaults of suffering or persecution in the sense of bearing up under them and enduring them patiently. Whatever happens to us in this life, no matter how great the loss, no matter how deep the hurt... Let us never forget that God will give us the grace to endure it. James 1, 2 through 4 says this. It's a very meaningful passage in my life, and it says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you and I endure... If we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will become like him. We will become formed fully and completely into his glorious and perfect image. And we will become joint heirs with him. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't miss that. 
Don't let the momentary afflictions of this life get in the way of an eternity with Christ. I beg of you, I plead of you to endure until the end. And I assure you that if you do, you will not be disappointed. Love, true biblical love, endures all things. God is is good. And in his word, he helps us to see how we are to live. And quite honestly, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't remind you that it will be impossible, impossible for you to practice the type of love that we've just talked about this morning without having placed your faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Apart from having the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will never be able to truly love. But with it, Oh, with it, you can enjoy the blessing of loving far purer than you ever have before. This is true love. The kind of love that God's children are called to walk in. The kind of love that is far more than the 15 traits that we have talked about, but nothing less. It is a love that has been shown to us through our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, And it is a love that he calls us to show to one another as we live in this fallen world. May God give us the grace to love in this manner. May God help us to be a people that truly are known by our love for one another. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. And I pray that your word was brought forth in such a way that you will just use it to soften these hearts of ours, to help us to see ourselves rightly and to see our own shortcomings and to see how much we are people that are in need of your grace and mercy. And Father, we come and we thank you and we praise you for the grace that you have poured out on us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be a people that truly love in this manner, that we would have this agape-type love, and it would not just be some feeling that we're after, but that it would be a conscious choice for us to do that which you have called us to do in your word. We thank you. We praise you for the perfect example of your son. We thank you for how he modeled this so perfectly. Help us to follow in his footsteps and help us to bring you much glory in all that we say and do. Forgive us for the times when we have failed to love and help us to resolve right now, today, to love biblically and to repent of any unbiblical love that we have been seeking to practice. We thank you and we praise you and ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.